خوش آمدید همتان گرامی من شهریار افشار هستم میزبان شما در پالیتیکس 365 امروز یک پروفسور دانشگاه رایس یونیورسیتی به برنامه دعوت کردیم آقای کریستین اوریکسن ایشون یه صاحب نظر و کارشناس امور بین‌المللی سیاسی و خاورمیانه هست چندین کتاب نوشتن در این موضوع و می‌خواستم ایشون رو دعوت کنم و نظرشون رو در مورد جنگ اسرائیل و حماس و نقش ایران در خاورمیانه و اثر این برخورده در تمام روابط آمریکا با کشور خاورمیانه بگیریم. پروفسور ویلکم تو پالیتیکس 365 سو گود تو هاو یو هیر آی فالوود یور یور ورک اند یور بوکس آنلاین سو فاسینیتینگ اند آی لوف when others study the Middle East, it makes me feel like not such an oddity uh, because I, 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 it's, it's such a complex environment to operate in, to be successful in, to build positive relationships in, and just the events of not only the past 50 years uh, with uh, the Iranian revolution, but, but also now since October 7, again, the world has seen a seismic shift in what's happening. I would love it if you could just give us a quick background about yourself uh, at Rice and then get into really what you observe is happening in the Middle East. Well, thank you for having me. So I've been at Rice for 11 years. I work at the Baker Institute for Public Policy, which was founded by James Baker, the former Secretary of State from 1989 to 1992. Uh, for about the last 20 years, I've been focusing on the political economy, international relations of the Persian Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, UAE, Bahrain, Oman, and on the ways in which the Persian Gulf states are emerging as regional and international powers, how they engage with each other and with the rest, the rest of the, the Middle Eastern and Islamic world, including with Iran, and trying to track a period of increasing change, not just around the world, but also within the Gulf itself and uh, especially within Saudi Arabia. So I've done a lot of research on Saudi Arabia and trying to really make sense of the directions in which Saudi policymaking is going, uh, including vis-a-vis -vis Israel and, of course, Iran too. Thank you. Thank you. You know, since you mentioned the growth and uh, the economic, uh, I'm going to say, prosperity of the Gulf states, uh, could you opine on how you would grade these Gulf states, including Iran. I mean, what is, I mean, I can tell you, a lot of Iranians ask, look at Dubai, look at the Emirates, look at what they've been, look at Saudi Arabia, look mm -hmm. at what these countries have been able to do. And meanwhile, Iran seems to have been suspended in time to 50 years ago, maybe 100 years setback. Well, I think Iran is obviously a very distinct case because of all the sanctions since 1979. And so that's obviously had a, an impact, both US sanctions and then international sanctions too. And so clearly there has been uh, a lag in terms of development. Uh, we've also seen Iraq as well suffer from decades of sanctions and, the, and conflict too. So the sort of Dubai analogy perhaps is something that a lot of countries around the Middle East look at, but Dubai is very small. It's a very small entity, several million people of whom fewer than 15% are UAE citizens. And they really had to diversify first because Dubai's oil reserves peaked in 1991, or their production peaked in 1991, and they really had to 
face the challenge of moving towards a post-oil economy decades before anybody else. And so we saw in Dubai in the 1990s, the leadership beginning to try and build a post-oil future based on real estate, construction, travel, tourism, entertainment, and trade. Um, of course, that wasn't seamless. Dubai then was hit very badly by the financial crisis in 2008-2009. And ironically, Dubai was then bailed out by Abu Dhabi, the oil-rich neighbor next door. But the fact remains that Dubai really had to diversify first. And we're now seeing 30 years later, Saudi Arabia especially trying to follow the same road in trying to build a non or perhaps a post-oil economy that is more sustainable 50 years from now. Right. I think uh, most uh, people in the diaspora uh, and maybe uh, Iranians around the world look at the fact that uh, tiny Dubai almost has no foreign policy other than those islands in dispute between <laughs> Iran. Um, and it's it's concentrated all of its uh, economic power uh, on building itself, as you say, diversifying from oil. Uh, I see on social media so much um, uh, propaganda to attract investors and lifestyle um, uh, uh, jet setters to come to Dubai. Uh, mm -hmm. And Iran's trying to do the same, but it just suffers from a lot of baggage, sanctions included, but a lot of political baggage. And of course, every time you see uh, the news nowadays, they say the Iran-backed Houthis, the Iran-backed Hezbollah, the Iran-backed Hamas. I mean, that, that just becomes the name of those organizations now. And I just wonder mm -hmm. if that investment abroad has held Iran back. Yeah, I mean, again, just you know, in terms of Dubai, the analogy is also Dubai is part of the United Arab Emirates. And so the foreign defense and security policy is more handled by by Abu Dhabi, which also has been embroiled in regional conflicts in, in, in Yemen, in in Libya, backing different groups. But Dubai has kind of been away, it's kind of separated from that and really focused on the on the economic and uh, investment opportunities that has seen Dubai grow so quickly and really become a hub for soft power in the Arab and Islamic world. A lot of people now want to go and live and work and do business in Dubai. I mean, for a country like Iran, obviously, there's a much bigger population, so it's a bit more difficult to do that kind of economic transformation as it would be with a very small population like in Dubai, where again, so few are actually citizens. There are many more layers of political and economic kind of vested interests. And obviously over the last 45 years, Iran's foreign policy has clearly held things back in terms of the support for groups around the Middle East that have continually undermined, should we say, Iran's relationships, not just with the West, but also with regional states. And uh, you've obviously seen that with the Persian Gulf states, with, with the Houthis more recently in Yemen, but also with Hezbollah in Lebanon and to some extent with Hamas. And so uh, politics gets in the way, perhaps, of economic and international relationships. And I think that's what a place like Dubai has really tried to just kind of to move beyond. They kind of take politics out of the equation. And they've been quite successful in doing so, but it's going to be much more difficult for any large country. It's more difficult for Saudi Arabia, too. It's not just Iran. It'd be more difficult for Iraq to do the same thing, because in any large society, you do have so many more layers of political economic interest that have to be part of any decision making process. You can't just make a decision and let it run like they do in Dubai or in, in Qatar, for example. Right. You know, how do you uh, when you look at the Middle East and the Gulf states, 
since you mentioned um, some of these countries, I think in principle support uh, the, pe the people of Palestine, even though they may not let Palestinians move to their country, uh, they, they support them from a distance. Uh, Iran has gone a step further. They support, they, they arm, they, they do a lot more. Uh, so I'm curious how these countries like Saudi Arabia, like Jordan, uh, especially Qatar, have found this balance of maintaining their independence and, and uh, political tightrope walking while not getting embroiled in as far as what Iran has gotten embroiled in. Yeah, I mean, the, the, none of the Persian Gulf states have ever been frontline states. They've never been the sort of Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt on the front line of the Arab-Israeli or Israeli-Palestinian conflict, even though politically and economically the Persian Gulf states have supported historically the Palestinian cause. And in 1973, we saw Saudi Arabia orchestrate the oil embargo after the 1973 conflict. And so we've seen in the past the Gulf states taking major roles, perhaps less so in the more recent years. And we've seen also normalization in terms of at least the UAE and Bahrain normalizing in 2020. And there were, at least up until October 7th, very clear signals that Saudi Arabia was at least engaging in dialogue with Israel and with the US and over a potential agreement with Israel too. In terms of balancing, the Gulf states have tried to avoid getting sucked into being those frontline states. They've tried to depoliticize the relationship. With the exception of Kuwait, every Gulf state maintains a pragmatic relationship with Israel. Kuwait is perhaps the outlier. They refuse to have any dealings whatsoever. But Oman and Qatar, for example, engage where they have to on issues of mediation, on energy issues. Saudi Arabia and Israel have become much closer so I think there's a recognition that at least until October 7th, there was a feeling that the Palestinian issue was no longer the main fault line within the Middle East. There were other issues like Iran, for example, where you could increasingly see the Saudis, UAE and Israel were more on the same page. Question is, of course, whether October 7th and everything that's happened since has obviously re reinserted the Palestinians into the very center of the Middle Eastern kind of geopolitical landscape. And actually, it's created a lot of dynamics, which I think have really pushed aside that focus, that idea before October that you could somehow take the Palestinians out of the equation, dealing, just engage with Israel. And that clearly has been been shown to be perhaps wanting to some degree. And so that might change things going forward. You know, looking ahead, um, what does the future look like? I mean, uh, the regime in Iran has been there for 45 some odd years. I know many expatriates wish they could simply evaporate, but it that's unlikely. Uh, many in the diaspora are advocating for what they call maximum pressure. But um, I've observed in this program and talking with experts all over the world uh, that we may call something maximum pressure, but we're not really exerting maximum pressure. So uh, what does, and, and, and you, since you mentioned the Palestinian situation, I'm just wondering, how do you reconcile the Middle East uh, as long as Iran is there and as long as this regime, mm. I'm sorry, not Iran, the regime is there. And as long as uh, there's a Hamas and a Hezbollah uh, pushing back on everything that Israel is doing and there's that conflict, can there ever be a reconciliation or a point in time or a perfect balance where uh, peace can evolve? Is that even possible anymore now? 
Well, it's very interesting. In 2023, we had all the talk about normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but there was a normalization of some sort. It was with Iran. It was with the China brokered deal in March last year that uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran restored diplomatic relations. And it was very interesting that five days after October the 7th, um, President Raisi actually spoke for the first time with Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. And then he went, Raisi went to Saudi Arabia for the uh, Organization of Islamic Conference meeting in, in November. So it's been interesting to see that unfold. I mean, you, you talked about maximum pressure in 2018-19 under the Trump administration. And UAE and Saudi Arabia were initially very supportive of that. But once in 2019, you began to see attacks on maritime and energy targets in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE, uh, culminating in the attack in September 2019 in Abqaiq, where half of Saudi Arabia's oil production was knocked out for a couple of weeks. Those attacks and the fact that the Trump administration did not do anything in response, that really shook the view of the officials in, in Saudi and in the UAE. They realized that they were much more on their own than they thought. And we saw straight away a almost complete shift in policy where the UAE reached out directly to Iran, Saudi Arabia reached out indirectly through intermediaries for in, in, in Iraq and in Oman. But they all led to the kind of reconciliation to some extent of, and the de-escalation with Iran because the view in Saudi, the view in the UAE was we cannot rely on the US to support and protect us if we're, if we're hit. And we're still seeing that unfold and play out where they're convinced that the US is somehow disengaging from the Middle East and that therefore they have to live with Iran, live with their neighbors. As Obama said, you have to share the neighborhood. And that created a huge uproar in 2016 when Obama said it, but we're now seeing that play out. So we have seen a reconciliation of some sort, or at least a de-escalation in the Gulf. In 2020, when Qasem Soleimani was killed, and it looked as if there might be a spike or even a conflict between the US and Iran, the Saudis even sent Mohammed bin Salman's brother to Washington to make the case in person for de-escalation. This was very different from the messaging from 2017 and 2018, where the Saudis were sort of much more gung-ho, much more hawkish. So I think we are seeing U.S. policy having the maximum pressure campaign having been seen in the Gulf to have failed, and at least Saudi, UAE and other states making their own judgments as to what they should do to put their interests, not the interests of the U.S. first. And I think this has been very interesting to see over the last 12 months. And well, I think it'd be something to see how that continues to unfold in 2024 as well. That's fascinating that uh, although it may not be as direct as some people would like to observe, uh, politics is often a messy business. Diplomacy is, is not often a direct confrontation. It's, it's handled through intermediaries, through uh, strange bedfellows that somehow yield the result or, or cultivate an environment where the desired outcome may evolve. Um, that's politics and diplomacy, so it, it may not be as direct as the maximum pressure campaign that uh, people like to bl uh, brand here. And you also mentioned China. Uh, 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 from a distance, again, it may look like the U.S. has ceded its leadership role in the Middle East uh, to Russia and China and, and, other, and Saudi Arabia even, uh, more so than maybe the Abraham Accord, the time of the Abraham Accord, and, right? It, it, that, that, how is that, do you see it that way or is it still present, but now China and others are around the table too? 
Well, the US is still present in a physical sense. They still have the bases, they still have the forces. And of course, now with the war in Gaza, the US is much more focused on the Middle East than I think the Biden administration would have wanted. They were trying to uh, refocus on back away, away from the Middle East onto the Pacific and onto China and Russia. And so, I mean, the US is still there. I think the perception is different, though. The perception in Saudi Arabia and UAE and others is that the US is unreliable, that the US, we don't know what this administration, still ne still less the next administration or the one after that is going to do. Uh, they've seen Obama, Trump and Biden in different ways all take decisions that seem to leave them guessing. And so it's in that context that we've seen uh, the Gulf states, the Persian Gulf states, moving back towards um, almost non-aligned foreign policy where they're going to have relationships with China and Russia. They're going to put their interests first, not what the U.S. thinks they should say and do. And we've seen that all very, very strongly with the the aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, where especially the UAE became the sort of epicenter for Russian capital fleeing the U.S. and, and European states. And so we've already seen before Gaza a very much the, the decision that this era of great power competition and strategic rivalry doesn't concern us. We're not picking sides. And I think everything we've seen since October the 7th, where we are, you know, obviously have seen maybe a different standard the US is setting when it's talking about Russia or talking about Israel, and we've seen that even more pronounced where none of the Middle Eastern states, including in the Persian Gulf, are going to take sides in terms of supporting the US against China. And China is there to stay. They, Already, a lot of the oil and gas from the Middle East goes to China. China's a long-term economic partner in that in that in that region of things. And why would you why would you pick sides for short-term political gain over a long-term economic and energy relationship? And I think that's the that's the way it's seen in regional capitals. Well put. And as uh, the old saying goes, if you have to shout, perhaps you need to improve your argument. Uh, and if you have to use a gun, whether it's in Iran or, or uh, the, the Middle East or Gaza, uh, perhaps you need to work on your idea a little bit better because uh, 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 that just doesn't pay. But Professor, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. I felt like a student in your class uh, learning. Uh, you've really taught our audience a lot. Please come back and join us soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.